Here we are now with part two of our series on the novel 1984 by George Orwell. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that, of course. But now let's do a quick summary before we launch into part two. Basically, we've got this character, Winston. And he's in this world where everything seems like a nightmare. But he doesn't really know how to tell that he's in the nightmare. Because everyone goes along with it. Everyone is giving him information. He's getting all this propaganda. And he's in this dictatorship society. Where the dictator owns the information and owns all the knowledge. And he has these little things come up in him, these small intuitions towards beauty, towards comfort, towards what it's like to really be free, towards truth. What does truth really mean? How can we know what's true? How can we know if the past is true? How can we trust the information that we have, he's thinking to himself. And he's got these memories and he's got these characters which he's interacted with, but he doesn't really know what he's in. And these small intuitions are only very small. He's not a full rebel. He's not a full stick-it-to-the-man kind of attitude because he lives in fear, because he lives in the pain or the constant threat of the pain that might come to him if the dictatorship finds out what he really thinks. What happens if the thought police capture him? What happens if the surveillance betrays him? And it might be something as simple as an offhand comment, or just a funny look in the eye, or a small gesture. Of course, he has done things that could incriminate him, like his journal, which he's writing to help sort of sort out his memories and help for him to see through things. And there is a lot in this world that Winston is that is also in our world. And on the surface, of course, in an ABC way, it's not the same world because we don't live in a dictatorship. And this dichotomy of the individual and the government is not a clear dichotomy now because now we have other institutions, we have corporations, we have big business, we have all sorts of forces beside the force of politics influencing and playing a role in our culture today. But we do sort of just walk around and get given information. And we sort of just accept it at face value. And we sort of have to accept it because it's not an isolated information. Now, if we say there's an important message coming from the government, say, for example, just just an example, as a random example, completely random is this example, let's say for... For instance, if your government told you to stay indoors, 
I told you to stay alone and don't visit your friends, don't go out and don't socialise. Well, then they're going to tell you and they're going to have a reason for it and they're going to tell you the reason. And people are going to accept it. And the vast majority of people will accept it. And then you'll be walking around and you'll think, well, I know everyone else is going to accept it. And I don't know if I really agree with it. And even if I do not really agree with it, I'm still really going to accept it because, well, I don't want to run into someone and then have them say, well, why aren't you agreeing with this? Or why aren't you doing this? And it becomes a cultural climate. It becomes a part of the cultural stigma. Well, not necessarily a stigma, but a cultural expectation. And that exists in individuals. That exists in people that you meet. And the whole way we go to the supermarket or when we travel around or when we visit certain people or the certain interactions that we have, that starts to change. And it all stemmed from this one order from the government, which is to stay at home. And of course, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories about, well, they're not telling us the real reason. There's always that side. There is always that side of our interpretation of what culture is like. And there is, well, the, cult, the, the, the conspiracy theory rabbit hole is a bit of a tangent. And I don't know if this is the right place to go about wading into those waters. But in the sense of our story here, where we have Winston and this dictatorship that he's in, well, he begins to, in a sense, believe that there is a conspiracy. He believes that there's something hidden behind the government that they're not being told, that is not right. And of course, the way it's written in 1984, in this novel, 1984, is that, well, everything's overtly upside down and back to front. And there's no real way of telling because of it. A, a bold lie is harder to dis- disprove than a tentative lie. Because a bold lie just might be right. It's harder to grapple with. It's more confronting. It's more overwhelming. And when we talk about a lie that is epistemic to a culture, then that is very bold. That is very deep. That is very hard to debunk. It's very hard to refute. And we get our information nowadays from all sorts of places. We get it from billboards. We get it from TV. We get it from the internet. We get it from articles. And we get it from each other, from our conversations. People share their opinions. We get it from blogs. We get it from videos. We get it from images. We get it from status updates. We get it from links to websites. 
So the cultural complexity is very different in our world to the world that Winston is Winston is in, where it seems like there's this centralized government and the government controls all of it. And they have this one set of principles which they're peddling to the masses. And that's the simplicity of it. It's one side or the other. And if we look at a culture which is much older, of course, this is set in the 20th century. Let's take a, take a look at an older civilization where it was just a monarchy and it was just the king and the peasants. Well, then you'd have the king and his royal family and all the peasants, and it was two classes. And then the king would give the rules the land, the laws of the land, and everyone would follow, and no one would have a choice in the matter. And it really was that simple, as compared to now, where it's not always the case that it's exactly the politicians that are the source of the things that permeate through our culture. It might be profiteering that is the driving force. It might be power as through information, data collecting, that is the driving force. And for many cultural parameters, it's not the case that there is an individual somewhere sitting in a chair with all this power, thinking up something to do and then telling their subordinates to carry it out for an effect to gain their power or to grow their power or to protect their power. Actually, it's the case that these individuals that are in the place of power have a lot of different complications and webs and parameters on them as well. And even to them, where power lies is more mysterious. So Winston's in this world, and he's starting to have ideas about what a different culture would be. And this is part two, and part two carries on from part one. And he's walking down the hall one day at work, and he sees the girl that actually he's been thinking might be spying on him. And he thinks, oh, here she is again. She might be still spying on me. What should I do? And as they cross paths, she actually trips and falls over and cries out, ah, oh, I hurt myself. And he goes, oh, oh, okay, well, I'll help you up. And as he helps her up by the hand, she slips something into his hand. A tiny piece of paper. And in this instant, before he realizes what's happened, she's dusted herself off and off she goes. And he has to put his hands in his pockets and continue on his way. And to think, what could this be? It must be a secret. It must be something political. It must be something highly against the law highly rebellious 
against this dictatorship, this, this dictatorship that he is in. So when he gets the chance, and he's very careful to make sure no one's looking around and there are no telly screens to survey what he's doing, he finds a very secret spot, a very subtle spot, he finally gets to read this piece of paper. And he pulls it out and he subtly unrolls it and he looked down and written on it is three simple words. It says, I love you. And he's stunned. My goodness. I thought this woman was after me. I thought I was going to have to kill this woman the other day. I thought she was part of the thought police. I thought she was going to bring my downturn. And now she's written this on a piece of paper. And what unfolds is his huge mind game of what to do. And of course he disposes of the piece of paper so that there's no evidence. And he then goes on and on about... Why would she love me? What would she do? Could we be together? Maybe she's changed her mind. Maybe she meant it for someone else. Maybe she does this to everyone. Maybe it's actually a trap. Maybe it's a test. Maybe she is part of the thought police and this is her way of getting me incriminated. How could he know? How could he make contact? How could he approach her? And on and on it goes, inside his head, he's trying to work it out, what to do. And of course he realises she's quite an attractive young lady. This might be his chance at love. And what if she's genuinely in love with him? Well, that's something beautiful. That's something worth risking your life for. And he keeps having dreams about her. He keeps thinking through what he could do. He keeps playing out different scenarios, seeing if he could get away with them. And for a few days, he doesn't even see her again. And then he finally figures out that the best place for him to try and make contact with her again while he's under this while they're all under this intense surveillance from the dictator and the government is in the canteen so he keeps going to the canteen with the impression of well I should sit near her and subtly kind of do a little gesture but even that proves difficult because each time he goes to the canteen someone will sit next to him or something will happen or she won't be there or she'll be sitting with a group of people And this is just basically what happens to a guy (laughs) when he finds out that a girl likes him. (laughs) This is the classic back and forth that is going on between two people when they feel they want to get together. It's just like a bunch of teenagers. How can we sneak out of class? How can we get some privacy? Some privacy for a relationship, for getting together with someone, is still the case. It's still something we contend with. 
Because you don't want to walk up to someone and start having some lovey-dovey introduction while she's with all her friends. And you don't even want it to be so obvious that, oh, they've snuck off together. Where's Doster and -and so-and-so? They're missing. They must be together. (laughs) I've definitely known some of those moments in my life. Particularly as a teenager. It's sort of like a, a teenage game. A young love game, the the innocent love game. And of course, these two people are quite innocent. And they're in this dictator this dictatorship as a as adults, so it's quite brutal for them to find a way to connect. So there's even a moment where he turns up at the canteen and she's sitting by herself and he goes to sit near her and then some other man looks like he might interject and sit down near her. And by a miracle, he trips over and spills his lunch. And it's just like that moment of the couples getting together and someone sits right next to them. <laughs> And you're thinking, we're sitting there in the movie theatre saying, no, go away, go away, they're getting together and he can't see it. He's just sort of eating his popcorn or something or eating his lunch or he's completely oblivious to it. So they do manage to sit somewhere at long last, uh, almost a week or more than a week after he's got this letter from her, this note that says, I love you. They do manage to sit somewhere in the canteen where there's no one too close to listen to their conversation and there's nowhere near a telescreen that can hear their conversation. And even at this time, still Winston is thinking, maybe she's given up. Maybe after a week, she doesn't love him. Maybe now that she sits close to him and sees what he looks like, She doesn't love him. Maybe she's lost interest. But they do exchange words, a few very subtle words without making eye contact and in a whisper, and they work out where they can meet after work. And they go to a different place outside the office, and then at that point, they're in a crowd, so it's safer to talk, But they still keep it very quick, very short. And she tells him of a secret hiding place where they can go and talk freely. And it's quite poetic how that moment is written in the book because they're in this crowd... And Winston and this girl are trying to exchange information so that they can meet at this secret hiding place and have some real quality time without the fear of surveillance on them. And in that crowd, during that time, there are war criminals being trucked through the city. And there's this moment, this tender moment where Winston is watching them go past in these trucks and he makes eye contact with one of them and he sees the defeat. He sees the hurt, the pain 
of what it means to be a war criminal. Knowing that they are going to a concentration camp or a labour camp or possibly even their own death. And at that same time, this woman is standing next to him and she holds his hand and squeezes his hand. And he feels a tender lovingness. He feels a warmth. He feels a human connection of someone he can trust. Someone he might be able to be intimate with. Something that he hasn't had deeply for for years, possibly for his whole life. So it's a very poetic moment to have those two things happening at once. Those two feelings bubbling up inside of him. And it echoes the confusion of the whole attitude of the state. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. And those dichotomies, those false dichotomies, those contradictions, are so beautifully illustrated by looking into the eyes of the war criminal and holding the hands of this beautiful woman that he's just met. It's a bit of an elaborate plan to go off on this train trip and out of town and through back streets and around along this path to find this sort of place in nature. It's not really a place, it's more just this secret place that they can meet. And they both get there in different ways and get there in different times, but eventually they do make their way there. They find themselves in this beautiful surrounds with trees and grass. And they can see they're enough far away that there won't be any cameras or telescreens or microphones to record them. And they finally get to meet and talk. And she exchanges names and we find that, well, this is Julia and this is Winston. And she's in her mid-twenties and... He's almost 40, so there's quite an age gap. But she doesn't care. And they get close. And she asks him, well, what did you really think of me? And he says, well, (laughs) I better be honest. I actually was going to kill you because I thought you were part of the thought police. (laughs) And she's quite thrilled by this. Because she knows she's a complete phony. She knows that it's, a, it's an all a big act. And it comes out that, well, she's made peace with the terrible nature of the culture much more than Winston has. And that's why she goes along with it. And she even says you can break the big rules if you follow along with the small rules. And he asks, well, what made you trust me? What made you attracted to me? And she said, well, it was something in your face. Sort of like how Winston trusted 
or trusts O'Brien because of that look in the face. And she said, well, she's become, what do I say? She's become accustomed to judging people just by their face because that's how you have to. And that's all the, really the information that you've got to go off for a lot of people. And she knew that in his face, it was starting to show that he felt differently, that he didn't appear to be with the party. He didn't appear to truly go along with the political agenda. And then some magic happens. She takes her clothes off. And ooh la la, they start making love. And this is a glorious moment. This is a beautiful moment for Winston. Because he's fantasized about it. And he's realized the political rebelliousness that goes with it. And he asks, have you done this before? And she says, yes, I've done this with loads of guys. And he's so glad to hear this. He's so glad to know that someone is rebelling. Someone can get pleasure while living along in this god-awful society. And he says, I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want any virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone to be corrupt to the bones. End quote. And this is his way of saying, well, if what society stands for is goodness, then I don't want to be good. And that's his triumphant feeling of how bad this girl is. She's such a rebel, and that's such a turn-on. No emotion was pure to him, because everything is mixed up in fear and hatred. And the making love was quite strange. It was a bit of a back and forth, because he's so out of practice. But also, really, it came off in the end as a victory, a real victory. So they decide to meet again and keep meeting. And they can only really use this hideout once more before it becomes suspicious. But they find other hideouts. But even with hideouts and communicating discreetly and under the radar from the surveillance government, it's still very difficult for them to meet. And that's because, well, he's got his job and she's got her job and they work at different times. And then also there are different community activities and different things that they go to just to put up the appearance of going along with society. And between all those things, there's only a very narrow amount of time where things really cross over, where they really do cross over. And then they've got the travel time of going to some hideout, organizing it carefully in advance. And this really gets to another point of the story. Well, I don't know if this is a really a big point, but I got this impression, which is 
to have pleasure and to have love and to have these intimate relationships, well, there's not just this thing of maybe your culture is against it, but there's also just how much culture occupies you, how much of it is within, how much stuff is in your life, how much of going along with culture is in your life, how much work do you do, how much culture do you consume. And you can say, well, there's something very similar to this in everyday life, like if you've got work and then you've got footy on the weekend or you've got sports or you've got hobbies and then you've got to take care of the kids if you're in a family. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't leave much time. It doesn't leave much time for love. And you can say, well, what does the opposite look like? What do we say? And let, let's get a whole bunch of people and we'll just get them to sit around and talk to each other all day and we'll make them really relaxed so they can come and go as they please and they don't have to go to work and we can feed them. Basically, we'll just send them on holidays. And then how much love do you think would happen? How many people would fall in love? And that's really why people do have these holiday romances. That's why love does happen when you travel. Because you're just free. You've just got spare time. There's no regimented schedule. There's no thing that has to be done. And that's a cultural comment about, well, what if we just had less culture? Like we talk about the qualities of culture and we talk about the origins of culture. What about the amount of culture? And really, that's what's happening with Julia and Winston because they leave their culture. You notice that when they fall in love, when they make love, They've actually gone to a secret hiding place which is away from their culture. When you remove yourself from culture and you make space for love, and as it turns out, well, Julia actually works in the porn industry. And she's not a she's not a porn actor. But she actually works in the porn sector and disseminates these crude B-grade pornos to the lower class to keep them frustrated. And yet in her own class, in the middle class, she's part of the anti-sex league. And she's doing these organizations which are educating children in such a way as to make sex negative, make it a bad thing. And her way of rebelling is by having sex. It's by making love. So you can see there's a very complicated twist of contradictions there. And she does see things differently to Winston. Winston sort of still has this thing in his mind that, well, the the lower class will revolt if they could just see if they could just have a little bit more intelligence, then they'd all get together and then they'd overthrow this dictatorship. But she doesn't have any of that in her. She has no ideas of organized rebellion. 
any kind of organized revolt against the party, which was bound to be a failure, struck her as stupid. And she thought the clever thing was to break the rules and stay alive all the same, and just do individual acts. And there are other little bits of information that Winston shares with her that she just doesn't find interesting at all. Like the whole thing of historical integrity doesn't appeal to her. And he's saying, well, did you know that planes were not invented by Big Brother? They were actually invented before the revolution, before the creation of the current political state. And she sort of just says, ah, so what? What does it mean? It makes little difference. And that's something, that's a difference that we can point out. In these, that's, that's a difference in the relationship to historical integrity, which is pointed out in these two characters. And I can actually understand Julia's point of view. There is an attitude of, so what? So we've got human history. How does it really relate to us now? I'm still going to have to do my things. I'm still going to have to be in my position. How does this information affect me? And that is an important philosophical question. That's one that we all must ask. And one of the answers is, well, it changes your perspective incrementally and subtly. Each new piece of information shifts your worldview, at least in a small way. And it might be that you don't see the connection and there's not an obvious connection between the information that who invented the aeroplanes and who didn't. But there is. And half the trick is to, well, accept the information or find the information and organize the information. But really, it's up to you to find the connection and to know that it's your job to make the connection because it is possible to accept information and have it as a part of you but not have it affect you to not understand its significance so information alone is not enough it's also knowing how the information fits into other bits of information and it might have been that Winston had more knowledge about history and this sort of trivial sort of... I mean, I mean that's, the, that's the difference between trivia and history. Like trivia, when you have a list of trivia questions, then it's a historical piece of information which is isolated. It's by itself. And it's not tied to anything else. It's not tied down to earth. Whereas with history, historical information that does affect us, well, then it's tied into a narrative. It's tied in with multiple things. Because you can say, well, the plane was invented in a certain era, and then that led to the commercialization of air travel. It also changed how military responded, how armies were created, 
which then affected warfare, which could influence the outcome of certain wars. And then, of course, it went on to change our logistics industry of where things are produced. And now we have things which are manufactured in one country but sold in another because of the aeroplane. And we can create a whole story around the history of the, the plane and air travel. And it might be even that in that history, it's not important who invented the plane. Now we can say now the Wright brothers were the first to fly because they had this invention of, well, they were really the first. They really were the ones who invented flight. And in a sense, that is trivia, even if we put it into the story of the, the plane and how it evolved. But then on another hand, you can say, wow, they were the pioneers. There's something to appreciate in the pioneers of an industry, the pioneers of an invention. So that's a few little tangents that come up between Julia and Winston. Winston. And one of the things he says to her when he's sort of giving these political and historical conversations to her is, is he says, well, you're only a rebel from the, the hips down. And she giggles and laughs and thinks, ooh, 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 sort of like this. And there's this quote here which I'll read. Quote, when you make love, you're using up energy, and afterwards you feel happy and don't give a damn for anything. They can't bear you to feel like that. They want you to be bursting with energy all the time. All this marching up and down and cheering and waving flags is simply sex gone sour. If you're happy inside yourself... Why would you get excited about Big Brother? End quote. And that is very true. Many things are a subtle expression of sexual frustration. Like going to work to distract yourself like progress, like building something, like self-improvement. And in the case of this story, it's anger towards a foreign enemy, hatred, and the worship of the dictator. So Winston rents the room over the shop where he got his diary and his paperweight with the coral in it. And that becomes the little hideout for him and Julia. And it becomes a bit of a sanctuary. And one time she comes in and she sort of sets up camp. 
they have a little stove and they have a little cooker. And she's got this shopping bag of goodies. And she brings out some coffee. And it's not victory coffee. It's the real thing. And she brings out some cigarettes. And it's not victory cigarettes. It's the real thing. And she brings out some chocolate. And when Winston tries it, he thinks, wow, this is what real chocolate is like. And then she pulls out some sugar and she says, yes, and this is real sugar. This is not the fake sugar that we get at the canteen. And it's all these little things. They all start adding up to a better quality of life. And his whole sense of hope, his whole sense of beauty, his whole sense of appreciation has opened up because of the little things. Even the little things can make such a big difference. And then the best part about this picnic in the room over the shop that Julia and Winston are having is she says, now now turn around and hide for a bit. And he goes, okay, well, I'll close my eyes. And he hears a rummaging. And then she says, now you can turn around. And as he turned around for a second, he almost failed to recognize her. What he had actually expected was to see her naked. But she was not naked. The transformation that had happened was much more surprising than that. She had painted her face. She must have slipped into some shop in the lower class quarters and bought herself a complete set of makeup materials. And this makeup on her face, as simple as it was, made so much difference. So much difference. Because now she looked more feminine. And she says, well, another thing she says is, well, I really wanted to get a dress. And this comes up to one of the principles of the upside-down society, which is that a woman should be a woman and a man should be a man. And I feel like I'm going to get in trouble every time I bring up the masculine and feminine. It happened last episode too. Or was it this episode? I can't remember. But there is something very true and pure in a woman being feminine. A woman being a woman. And a man being a man. And in this society, in this story, Julia is usually dressed in pants. She's usually dressed in a tomboy outfit. And all the people that work she works with are women. And yet they have this masculine edge around, around them. And this is something we see. This is something, quite ironically, we even see in the feminist feminine movement. The feminist movement which is that the woman stands up and she says, I am very strong and I will prevail. Hear my powerful voice. And she's just using masculine energy. She's become the very thing that she's supposedly thinking that she's rallying against. And this ties straight back into the grand theme of this book, which is that 
Everything is upside down. Things are not called what they should be. Words are always the opposite of what they are. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. War is peace. Why can't a woman just be a woman? Why can't a woman just be feminine? Why can't a woman just be tender and eloquent? Why can't a woman just be soft? And there is probably a lot that we can say about the makeup industry. Because makeup is well well let's think this through. Like where where does makeup come from? What's the idea there? There's a subculture there. Which we can understand through this book, 1984. Because if I if I think about it, I think, well, you have a woman, and the woman is beautiful as she is. And yet then we can say, here's some makeup and we'll put some things on you and we'll accentuate certain things and then you'll be more beautiful. And then we can say, well, let's create a culture out of this. Let's create an industry out of this. And we'll feed these women this image of what is beautiful and then they will buy the product and that basically is the makeup industry right there. But you notice that this is exactly the same in the sense that it's not a dictatorship in a room using his power to say, now how do I send images to the masses to increase my power? It's not like that. It's more complicated than that. And in the same sense, it's not some businessman or woman saying, how do I create an industry for myself out of this image and these beauty standards and selling beauty products. It's much more complicated than that. But the same principles are there, which is that you're feeding people images through advertising, through all platforms of media and modes of communication, and a culture creates itself it grows out of itself because then people see it and they have their opinion of it and then you not only have the images affecting you but you have your friends and your peers affecting you and if everyone else is wearing makeup and you're not wearing makeup well that's a cultural pressure that's a cultural pressure on women and if you think well all these men are also seeing these images because when you see an image, it's not, only, it's not only as simple as you see it and then there's your impression of it and then deal with it. There's also the knowledge that everyone else is seeing it. And there's also the wondering, well, what does everyone else think of this? And now with social media, we have that even more to an extreme because people leave their comments for everyone to read. Now this is what everyone thinks. So the cultural parameters, the cultural strings that are on us are on steroids. And women are being bombarded with this day in, day out with all sorts of advertising. 
And you can look at this in one way and say, well, the makeup industry is just trying to make money off you. But that's too simplistic. It doesn't work like that. And you can't exactly say, well, makeup is bad. No one should wear makeup. Well, because that's not right either. Because we do find something beautiful about makeup. There is something quite nice about seeing a a woman in makeup. And women can also be beautiful. I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's studies. I'm sure that you can go and f- research this. There are probably psychological studies and sh- social experiments, makeup or no makeup. And I'm sure someone's written a PhD on the effects of images and advertising and the buying trends of women and their beauty products. But this is just what we've come up with today. Just by thinking this through, this is just something that's triggered me in this book, 1984. She also notices the paperweight and asks about it, a piece of coral paperweight that Winston had bought. She thinks, wow, that is beautiful. So after some time, and with this arrangement of Julia and Winston meeting in this room and good coffee and good chocolate, his attitude starts to change. Things start to turn around for Winston. He stops drinking gin all day because he simply, quite simply, doesn't feel the need. What a miracle. He just doesn't feel the need to drink when he's fulfilled intimately and with those small things. And even his coughing has happened less, like his smoker's cough is less. And the whole process of life is no longer intolerable. He doesn't have this impulse to pull a, a, a poker face when he's in front of the telly screen. He's just starting to relax. He's starting to feel like this place is even a bit, bit more like a home. It's more homely than just a place to hide out. Even if they could go there for only a couple of hours a week. Even even the knowledge to Winston that he had a place was a great solace for him. Because then he could walk around his day knowing that there would be a time of privacy. But of course, both of them know that this arrangement can't last forever. So there's another interaction, a critical interaction that happens in our plot. This happens next as we move along through our story, and that is between Winston and O'Brien. And it turns out that O'Brien hints in a subtle way to Winston that he should come over and meet him sometime at his place. And the pretext is, well, he's giving him a book, a dictionary, the new copy of the dictionary, an advanced copy, because O'Brien's been looking at his work, and O'Brien wants to help him. And there's very little information to go off, so Winston comes up with this 
think-through process again. He loves, he loves thinking things through and trying to work out what they mean. And he wonders, is this possibly the opening to the brotherhood? Now, what is the brotherhood? This is the secret rebellious society. This is the underground society that people only ever heard whispers about. And it's Winston's plan to join the Brotherhood, to rebel. And he thinks maybe O'Brien is part of it. Maybe O'Brien is in on it. And that's why he's asked him to come to his place, out of hours, under the pretext of a dictionary. And Julia, well, she doesn't care much for this. But she goes along with him and they arrange to meet up with O'Brien at his place. And it's a bit of an awkward situation. It's a bit of an awkward thing to go into. Because O'Brien, well, he's got his own servants. He lives in this luxury apartment. He's part of the upper class. And if Julia and Winston are the middle class and then there's the lower class, well, O'Brien is definitely the upper class. And he goes in, and when they're in there, O'Brien turns off his telescreen to the surprise of Winston. You can turn it off? And O'Brien says, yes, that's only a privilege that I have. And even at this moment, Winston isn't entirely sure. He's having doubts. Should he have trusted O'Brien so quickly? Should he have brought Julia along? Until, of course, there is this moment where Winston spills the beans and he goes all in and he says, O'Brien, we are against Big Brother. We want to rebel and we don't believe in the values of this dictatorship. Can you help us? Do you know of the Brotherhood? And as he's thinking this through and as he's saying this, he's, he's realizing, well, actually, maybe this is a big mistake because, I mean, what, what does he expect O'Brien to do? What sort of help does he expect? He hadn't thought that far ahead. And there is this other point, this, this thing that I thought when Winston has these ideas about the brotherhood or this thing of the brotherhood, and it's so funny that the brotherhood is the name of the secret society that's rebelling against the dictatorship, and the name of the dictator is Big Brother. And that ties in with this theme of things being confused. On the one hand, you've got Big Brother, and on the other hand, you've got Brotherhood. Why do they sound so similar? Why did the author choose such similar names for two of the forces, the two forces apparently of good and evil in this novel. And once he's out with it, O'Brien sort of sits and looks at Winston for a minute and there's this awkward thing in awkward silence and then O'Brien finally opens up and says, okay, you want to be part of the brotherhood? How far are you willing to go? And Winston thinks, yes, this is my big break. I'll do anything. We must rebel. And then Winston, uh, then O'Brien breaks into a series of questions. And these are moral questions that 
are designed to really test how much loyalty he has and what his moral standing is like. And O'Brien asks Winston, are you prepared to give your lives? Yes. Are you prepared to commit murder? Yes. Are you prepared to commit acts of sabotage which may cause the death of hundreds of innocent people to betray your country to foreign powers? Yes. Are you prepared to cheat, to forge, to blackmail, to corrupt the minds of children, to distribute habit-forming drugs, to encourage prostitution, to disseminate venereal diseases, to do anything which is likely to cause demoralization and weaken the power of the dictatorship? Yes. If, for example, it would somehow serve the interests of the rebellion to throw sulfuric acid in a child's face, are you prepared to do that? Yes. Are you prepared to lose your identity and live out the rest of your life as a waiter or a dock worker? Yes. Are you prepared for the two of you, Julia and Winston, to separate and never see one another again? No, says Julia. She butts in. And as we go through this, as a reader, we think, hang on a second, what is going on here? Winston, why are you saying yes? Where is your morality? You would cause the death of innocent people? You would throw sulfuric acid in a child's face? No, stand up, Wilson. Be the hero that we're yearning you to be. But of course we understand his morality is corrupt. His sense of right and wrong is back to front. It's upside down. It's inside out. It's full of contradictions. And so... He joins the Brotherhood, and O'Brien says that once you're in the Brotherhood, you can't expect any help. There are no gatherings. There are no ways of bailing you out if you get caught. There are no support lines. There's no information. You'll never know who is in it. You'll never know how many people are in it. And as he's describing this, you sort of start to think, now, what's the point of being in the Brotherhood? If you don't really get anything out of it, all you really get to say is, well, I'm in the Brotherhood. It doesn't really sound like much of an organization. Except for one thing, which is the book. The book of the Brotherhood. This is something that O'Brien says he will arrange secretly to be delivered to Winston. and He must read the book. And if it wasn't for that book, we might have been left thinking, actually, maybe O'Brien is just stringing along Winston. Maybe he's just going along with it. And as soon as he leaves, he's going to turn around and betray him to the thought police. Maybe O'Brien is really a secret spy. Is O'Brien really on the side of Winston? But it's okay, because he says he'll organize the book for him. And he does. And it's a very secret operation, 
to get such a highly sought after but very political piece of literature, which is the literature of the rebellion. And if he gets caught with that, either of them, either O'Brien or Winston, it would be instant death. And there's this elaborate exchange with his suitcase and the timing and he finds out that he does have the book and he takes it home and he puts it in his secret hiding spot. And we can breathe a sigh of relief. Oof. Just like it's a relief to know that we have some hideout which has some privacy, then, well, there is something in knowing that O'Brien is on his side. There is some relief on knowing that the Brotherhood does exist. There is a chance. There is a way out of this culture. Winston becomes very busy before he gets the chance to read the book. And that's because the festival of hate week is on. And why on earth would they be celebrating hate? That is just messed up. And there's a critical moment in this festival where a man is making his speech and riling up the crowd, trying to get them to be really hateful towards the country that they are at war with. And someone comes along and taps him on the shoulder, and right in the middle of this speech, there's a switch in the names of the countries that we are at war with. And the very country that we are at war with changes right there in the middle of this festival. And somehow everyone just goes along with it. And they say, well, all these posters have been printed wrong and all this information is wrong. These are all traitors. And what follows is this big amount of hate towards this country, which a few moments ago we weren't even at war with. It's not exactly why this change happened or how it happened, but no one seems to say anything. They all just go along with it. And from then on, for the next three or four days, Winston and his entire department at work have to go back through all of the logs and all of the articles and all of the books and all of the speeches and all the references and all the character profiles and everything and change them all to this new name for this new country which they're at war with. So much has to be shifted so that the history books match the truth, the so-called truth. And everyone works tirelessly. Everyone is putting in 18-hour days. Everyone's sleeping in the office. Everyone is just working their butts off for this feat. And after five days of hardcore work, it comes to an end and they've fixed it all up and they've smoothed out all the contradictions and the whole image of the dictatorship 
in the eyes of the press and of literature, is made pure again. And no one even stands up and says, now what's wrong with this? Because everyone's going along with it. It was such an amazing feat of, could we say, accounting or reporting. (laughs) And no one, no one actually stands up and says, how could this be? And no one could even acknowledge that, wow, that was a great achievement. Because you couldn't acknowledge that it was wrong in the first place. Acknowledging that you'd achieved something would acknowledge that something had changed when really they were just fixing how things should be to the truth. So after a long week, Winston goes home and he has some time in his little hideout and he finally gets to read this book, which is The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by Immanuel Goldstein. Chapter 1. Ignorance is Strength. Throughout recorded time, and probably since the end of the Neolithic Age, there have been three types of people in the world. The high, the middle, and the low. They have been subdivided in many ways. They have borne countless different names, and their relative numbers, as well as their attitude towards one another, have varied from age to age. But the essential structure of society has never altered. End quote. And basically that is society. We have the lower class, the middle class, and the upper class. And in classic communist Karl Marx theory, we say, well, we have the working class, and then we have the bourgeoisie who own the businesses. There are the business workers and the business owners. And the business owners are the ones that control all the power because they control how the money works where the money flows. And of course now it's more complicated than that because we have political systems involved. Because the government can come along and say, now hang on just a second, you need to pay your workers more because you're too rich and they're too poor. So now the power is in politics. And even more now in this day and age, it's much more complicated because we have social influencers who can share their their political opinion which can change how people see and vote for politicians and we can even say that well money isn't power no status is power influence is power and it's so funny that today we call our advertisers on social media, influences. I don't want to be influenced. And I think there's something fucked up about the overt calling of someone an influencer. It's almost like we are in this 1984 society and someone's being called what they are overtly and it's the wrong thing. For someone to be like the anti-sex league leader 
I don't want, an, want there to be an anti-sex league. And yet somehow, because they've got that as an official title, everyone in the society just goes along with it. And I'm sitting here right now saying that I don't want to be influenced by influencers. And if you are an influencer, well then, geez, think about what you're doing. What are you really standing for? And really, the classic way of dividing up a society is by income level. I mean, that's one of the metrics. That's, that's always going to be a metric. And there is also the intelligence metric on how much people know and how much knowledge or even wisdom people have. And even in that, we have the low, the middle, and the high. And we can say, well, does an extremely highly intelligent person who really sees what's going on, and they're at the top of the metric, they're the high class of the metric of intelligence classes, do they, do they really have power? And the answer is no, not really, not like they do, not like a politician or a businessman has power. And in fact, when you have a lot of wisdom, you simply steer clear of politics and business. You simply, you simply stay away from it all and you see what's going on. Usually the people that see most clearly what's going on are the people that actually stay out of it. And they actually remove themselves from that game. So Winston reads on, and there's a lot of political theory in this book. And one of the things that comes up is the invention of the machine, so the Industrial Revolution. And one of the interesting things that this book by Emmanuel Goldstein says is that, well, if we think this through, when man invented the machine, their job should become easier. They should have more leisure, right? We've gone from working farms with a plough and a sow to the tractor, which is doing the digging. And we've gone from sowing things with our hands and beating things with a hammer with our hands to the production line, to the assembly line, which makes things a lot more efficient. Which means, of course, well, then we should have more products for less work, so we should have a richer society with more leisure time, right? That's what the Industrial Revolution should have brought. Now, instead of a horse and cart, we have the steam train. So instead of so many days to cross the land, we can jump on the train and we're there in a few hours. And we can take this even further. We can say, well, now we have the aeroplane. And now we have technology. Technology should make our life so easy. It should be a breeze. It's just a click of the button and so much gets done. Things are just there in an instant. We have 
instant communication. Gone are the days when we're tying bits of paper to the pigeon, throwing them out the window and just hoping they get to the right owner. <laughs> I don't know if that ever happened. Gone, gone are the days of Harry Potter's <laughs> owl traveling by traveling overnight to deliver a message. Now we just have emails. <laughs> but what he's saying here is, well, we have this technology, we've had the Industrial Revolution, and yet things aren't easier. Life is not easier. And that's because these government organizations or the powers that be have set up this system where this society where we need to keep producing more and more and yet not have an influx of luxury. Because once you have your luxury, once you have your comfort, then you stop working. And in this book in 1984, the solution is to, well, constantly be at war. And the old thing of war being... War in the early 20th century was... Sort of, or sort of ABC war is, well, we have our country and you have your country and, you know, the bad guys are going to conquer the country and overtake them and then the map will get redrawn and then, you know, France will become Germany and then Germany will just be big. And that's sort of ABC war. And in this book, we say, well, that's... In this book, Emmanuel Goldstein, in this book that Winston is reading, the book within the book... They say that's not really how world that's not how war works. That theory isn't applicable now. It's not applicable anymore because just for one thing, a country wouldn't know how to occupy another country and it would be too much of a hassle for them to do so. To integrate France and Germany would be too difficult. It would be too much of a cultural shock. So it's not it's not possible and the the powers that be know this. They actually know that it's impossible and they have a different reason for going to war. And their reason is to keep us in fear. To keep us producing things. To keep our efforts towards things which don't serve us. To keep us working towards things which we don't need. And the trick is to simply be at war simply to create a sense of urgency in the people. And now, well, governments don't use war so much as they use other causes. And those causes work in the same way. They say, do this for the victory of our society. Do this for the the, for your own good. And really the thing they're asking you to do is to submit to fear, to take their information at face value. It might be something as simple as stay at home, keep out of trouble, isolate yourself, And we can say why, and we can say, well, there's a war effort on. Or we can say that there's some other big, distant 
predator coming that we must defeat. And in this novel, it's another country, but in our times, it's something else. So there's something to be said about the machine and the industrial revolution and why didn't it make our life better? And why is it that we're peddling progress so much when we have so much ability to be satisfied? It's almost like there's a metric of satisfaction and the ability to be satisfied that is out of proportion there. We should be more satisfied now than any human being has ever lived, right? Our standard of living is way better with the technology that we have. There are so many more people that are out of the tough lifestyles and the tough ways of life that have been throughout human history, that have been before us. So why aren't we satisfied? Why can't we just be how we are? And there's another meaning to the word machine. Like the machine, the machine can mean literally a machine, like the steam engine or the, the tractor or the digger. But then there's also the machine as in the political machine. And that, that's the meaning of the word machine in the band Rage Against the Machine. Bulls on parade, yeah. Killing in the name of, yeah. You know that band? Rage Against the Machine? Highly recommended. It's a metal band from the 90s. Political band, actually. Very political. And they use the word machine to mean this big organization, which is anti-nature. It's like the machine versus nature. The machine versus what's natural. The machine is a predator on man's freedom. The machine is something that is harsh and aggressive. As opposed to man who is soft and tender. Another thing that Winston reads as he goes through this book is, well, if people were just more educated, they could see that they could be satisfied with their life. And also the, the point of war is the destruction of materials which could have been used for making our lives richer. And he then goes on to talk about doublethink, which is the technique of holding two contradictions in mind, in different ways, as it serves the party. And this is really, we might say more about this later on, but we'll just mention it here. This, this thing of doublethink is the solution to the contradictions that we keep coming up in this story. Or that it's, it's, it's told to Winston as to how he should deal with these contradictions that he's got. So maybe we'll talk about that more because I feel like there's a lot in doublethink. Another thing Goldstein says in this book that Winston's reading is that, well, the powers that be have this 
balance between what they tell the people as a story that will get them to work towards the war effort, but also not telling them the truth. So they have to come up with something which isn't the truth, but also will keep them working at the war effort. And that's quite a balance. Because all powers that be impose a false worldview on their followers, but they can't allow that falsity to hinder their productivity. He also goes to talk about class mobility and how the idea of the middle class is to get to the upper class. And we see that now. We see the see very much in our society, our capitalist society, of class mobility peddling this thing of, oh, you can be me, you can be as successful as me if you just work for me. He then also goes on to talk about the ability, because of technology, of the government to enforce not just rules and obedience, but also an opinion. So who controls the press controls the opinion of the masses. And that's a different kind of power. And free press is something that's very important for a democracy. And now, nowadays that's even more complicated because we have a global press, because we have our global online presences. And that's a very sticky ball because some countries block certain people or certain websites. Some people do make money out of fake news. There are whole, there's a whole industry on fake news now. And really, journalism is, is a very different art today as it was in 1949 when this book was written. And as he goes on and he discusses more of these dynamics of society and politics and culture, he comes to this conclusion that, well, the more knowledge you have then the more understanding of what's going on, actually the more deluded you are because all the information has been organized in such a way that it doesn't correlate to true reality. That means that the more knowledge is there, the more deluded you are, the more further from the truth you are, the more intelligent, the less sane. And it really is a question of sanity. It's a question of what kind of reality is there out there? And Winston keeps reading this through and he finds, well, actually a lot of this he already knew. A lot of this was ideas and feelings and thought processes that he'd already had intuitively. And Winston is thinking, well, this man is obviously more thought out and he has more convictions in his thought and whoever's written this book is a lot stronger in his worldview and his understanding. 
but it's not exactly different. It's not exactly anything new at all. And that is a big realization to have. And there are books like this. And it's a curious phenomenon. It doesn't just go with political books or political commentaries. And in fact, that's what we're doing right here, right now, is we're talking about 1984 and comparing it to our society. And we're saying, well, we know we live in a, we know we live in a surveillance state. We know we have these screens that tell us what to do. We know that we're influenced by our culture and advertising. We know all these things. But there is something in hearing it from someone else. And I remember also this happening with psychology books because there were parts of psychology which I intuited myself, which I figured out for myself. And then I read the book and I thought, wow, that's a very good way of saying what I thought. When someone tells you what they think, tells you what you think, and it's a better way of saying it. That really is a, a big opening. And Winston gets it with this book and he thinks, well, what, what's the solution? Like there's a, there's a sense of hopelessness that comes with this because you're saying how everything is. What's the solution? And he's thinking, now, it must be the lower class are going to up and revolt against the upper class. That must be it. That must be what the punchline of this book is. Now, Winston's only a few chapters in he doesn't know the punchline and he's also asking himself okay you've explained how things are you've explained the structure of political climates and our culture but why why is it like this i know how but tell me why and he puts the book down and he dozes off for some time because he's been working so much all week it's very hard for him to keep reading so he has a sleep and julia falls asleep next to him and he wakes up and he's not sure what time it is when he wakes up because he could have slept for a long time or a short time and he hears someone singing out the window and he gets up and he goes and looks out to see a lower class old lady who's a bit fat and a bit ugly and she's doing her washing and she's singing and enjoying the sun and Winston just looks there and he just has a moment of appreciating beauty appreciating the moment And he realizes that she's just there singing a song, ignorant, with some semblance of happiness, some semblance of contentment. And he says, she's beautiful. And Julia's just thinking now, what What are you talking about? It's a fat old lady. Lower class, she's scum, something like this. And it's this inner sense of beauty that has been rekindled in Winston because he's had this relationship with Julia. He's found this book which has explained what's going on. He's 
reconnected with the simple pleasures in his life, like good chocolate, good cigarettes, and good coffee. I do not condone the use of cigarettes, by the way. Stay away from cigarettes, kids. (laughs) It's a tough habit to kick. Take it from one who knows. But he's rekindled this beauty, and he has it within him. It's his beauty, and it's his way of seeing the world, and it's so precious that he can look out his window and see a mundane, normal scene, like a fat old lady doing her washing, and see the beauty in it. And we think, yes, this is our hero of the story. He's finally got some resources to him. He's finally sorting out his head. It's finally becoming clear to him that he knows everything is wrong and he knows he has to rebel. He knows he has to keep his inner hope and his inner light alive. What's he going to do next? Is he going to come through to us? He's made so much progress. Things have become so clear for him. And what can he do? He's made contact with the brotherhood. He's got this friend in O'Brien who's in a higher class. There's so much going for Winston at this time. And I really hope he comes through. I really hope he can make it. But as he stands there, he realizes there's no way that this can last. And he says, We are the dead. And Julia repeats what he says. We are the dead. And then all of a sudden, they hear a voice behind them that says, You are the dead. And they turn around to see a member of the Thought Police standing right there with a gun pointed at his face. The house is surrounded. Guards come in. And it's at this point that Winston knows it's over. And he's placed under arrest Him and his lover, Julia, are placed under arrest and taken away by the thought police. And that's how the end of part two is. And right now, we can take a few minutes to sit quietly. So just take a moment to sit down and close your eyes and just meditate to let this episode sizzle out. And we will be coming back soon with part three. But for now, don't worry about that. Don't rush off to it. Just remind yourself of your patience. 
Give yourself time to comprehend this story. Give yourself time to come back to silence. And just sit quietly for a few minutes. And that's all I have to say for now.